as we kick off Advent today, we're going to be looking at some people that are like kind of a little bit on the journey. Um, and it's connected to some roads that we'll talk about in a minute. But Advent is all about waiting. It's about anticipating. Uh, we are people, and I, I always say this because I want to remind us what Advent is. Advent is a time when we look back on a people that looked forward to the Messiah's coming. Now we are a people that are longing for the Messiah to return again. They wanted Jesus, the Messiah to show up the first time. We are a people that are waiting for him to come again. And so we're looking at Advents um, this, uh, this year, as, and we're calling it longing. Uh, it's helping us as a people, and we talked about this last week, really keep Jesus as the center, but we're longing for a future. And so how do we sit, how do we wrestle, how do we live in the midst of longing for a better future while we are in the present moment? That's not what we want it to be. And that future is what we call, in Christian theology, the blessed hope. The blessed hope is a day when Jesus completely returns He wipes away all evil in the world, sin, Satan, death, anything that's opposed to him. While he defeated on the cross, he finally finishes him, if you will, when he returns again. And so when he returns, then there will be no more sin, sickness, pain and death. Jesus and and the, the Father, Son, Spirit will come and reside in on earth again. And we will be given renewed bodies that will walk with Jesus without any effect of sin at all forever. That's the noun, the future, the, the blessed hope. And there's different paths that each of us take and roads that some of us go on on the journey as we go to that future hope. And today is we're going to be looking at making choices around what road we are going to take. Uh, one of the texts for the morning is Romans 15, 13. We're going to be flipping over around the Bible a little bit. So if you have an actual Bible, go ahead and grab that out. If you have this here, electronic, go ahead and grab that. It's also on the screen for those that don't have that. Romans 15, 13 says this. Now may the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Question for you. Are you in your current life abounding in hope? Overflowing with hope. If not, it may be because you are on one of the roads of the characters that we're going to look at today. Because as we look at the topic of hope, there's two different roads that we're going to look at. They were both of the people or groups of people on these roads were motivated by something. They were motivated by a certain outcome. They experienced the effect of unmet hope. But both groups of people ultimately encountered Jesus in unexpected ways. And the two roads that we're going to look at, I'm going to be calling the road of misdirected hope and the road of unfulfilled expectations. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word into hope, 
May we become a people that abound in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to flip open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. This is the story of Paul on the road to Damascus. So before, uh, before we go there, let's back up for a second and get a glimpse of what Paul was doing before he gets on this road. Before, in Acts chapter 7, there's a man named Stephen that's giving this sermon to a council. And as he's giving this sermon, he's recounting all the ways in which God has been faithful to his people, Israel. At the end of that, he makes this unbelievable statement that to the people present caused them to kill him. He made the statement that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And in their context, that was a statement as Jesus is equal with God. And no, there is one God in their framework. They, you don't, there's no one equal. He's claiming equality and divinity of Jesus. And so they take him out of, of the city and they stone him to death. They, they kill him on the spot. So the question is, what was Paul's or Saul's, same person, interaction with that moment? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Hearty agreement. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions in Judea and Samaria, which is just further north, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. It continues in Acts chapter 9. And this is where he enters the road. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him uh, for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay. So, hearty agreement with the murder of, of Stephen. So much so that Luke, the author, says that he's arresting and binding men and women. Like for us, it's like, okay, cool, he's being all-inclusive. No, no, no. This is like, you don't do that. Like, if... If a family is blaspheming, it's usually the man that's taken, not both of them. So he is in such desire to ravage the people of God or the new birthing people of God that he's willing to go to the extremes. Now, what would take a biblical scholar like Saul, who knows the Ten Commandments, who knows which one of them is what thou shalt not murder and then him giving hearty agreement to the death of this person. We often forget that these characters are on a journey themselves. And so what is fueling this? Paul grew up in a day that was completely infused with hope. This hope was bound in their collective story. They, as God's people, were the, the people of a one true God, a God that chose them to be a blessing into the world. 
this God then saved them and rescued them, redeemed them out of Israel. And in doing so, God promised that this people would be his specific chosen people and he would be their God. And so then God gave them this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And he gave that to them. But hundreds of years of disobedience, God, while he is slow to anger, he does not allow injustice to continue. And so what does he do? He sends them into exile. They're removed from their land. We don't understand. We can't even imagine how heart wrenching this would have been for Israel, the people of Israel. And so even though now in Saul's day, they were back in the land, they were still kind of in exile because they couldn't rule themselves purely. And so Paul was one of the people that still had hope and his hope was part of being a Pharisee. They were zealous to keep the traditions and maintain a level of moral purity. Now, anyone who went against that purity, anyone who went against their way of life, especially if they were perceived to be blasphemers, they were subject to punishment. And blasphemers are speaking against the one true God was ultimate punishment. This is the thinking. If God's people's disobedience led them into exile. What's going to lead them out of exile? Their obedience. What was Paul's hope in? His hope was in his own ability and his people's ability to make things right. They disobeyed and got us in this predicament. We are going to do everything we can to make sure that we stay pure, that we are holy, that we live up to this standard so that God will come and by our obedience, the Messiah would come and set everything right. His hope was in himself and in others. He had a clear standard that he expected people to live up to, but they did not have the power to live up to it. We in our family, uh, we, we like Christmas. I mean, Darianne is like Christmas queen. She, we, we do like almost once a week some sort of Christmas festivity, whether it's Snowflake Lane or Fantasy Lights. We just, there's always something going on in our family. And so we put time and energy and effort into making sure that Christmas is like magical for our family. Like we want them to remember. We want them to look back and have like good fond memories that mom and dad love them. And so we pour energy into that, which means that that comes with a little bit of an expectation on how we function as a family around Christmas. So I don't know if any parents have experienced this, but there are times when you have really, really high expectations of how something's going to go. And then one of the children don't play along. I mean, no one's ever done that. Like, oh, this is going to be so magical. It's going to be so amazing. And then one of them's got a rotten attitude or like, I don't want to go or this is lame or whatever it may be. And it just throws 
all of it into like a little bit of a, a wreck. Because what's what my response, I can't say what your response is, but my response in the midst of that is, well, is a little bit anger. Like we just put time and energy and effort to this. Don't mess it up. Like follow the rules, stay, like here's the standard, just get close to it, right? What's, but what's fueling that? Why? Well, because we're trying to create memories and we want this to be this magical moment, what's really underlying that anger, at least in my heart, is fear. Because if these moments are designed, just follow my logic, it's, it's flawed, I know, but just follow with me for a second. If these are supposed to be these magical moments that are to bind our family together and our kids are going to be like best friends and we're going to like, they're going to have great memories and they're going to know mom and dad love them and they're not going to have to go to counseling, right? That's the goal. They already are going to. I already told them that. But you, you follow with me, okay? Well, if that moment doesn't do that, then those outcomes are not going to be realized. And so I have, there's fear that's fueling the, my response to them not living up to the standard. And the outcome of fear is anger. I mean, if you look at research, more and more is showing that underneath anger is really fear. Fear that they won't turn out right. Fear that we won't get it. Now, now think of Paul now. He's ravaging the church. I mean, this is a road of anger. This is a road that he's on that's ravaging hearty agreement to the death of another person. It's not hard to imagine that what's underneath that is fear that the Messiah is not going to come, that we're still going to be in exile. We're not going to be able to receive all the promises of God because we're not living up to the standard by which we should. And so what does he do? He goes on the road to Damascus to make things right. To get people to live up to the standard. And if they don't live up to the standard, they're, they're off the camp. They're out. They're, they're, they're purified from them. Because it's all about the purity of it. He had, I would say, a right hope. For, to want God's people to be pure is a good thing. To want people to live up to God's standard, not his own, just some of his own standard, but to live up to a standard, not bad. But what was his hope in himself and other people? He placed the weight of his hope on something and someone that was unable to satisfy it. How do you respond when things don't go your way? When you're afraid that your outcome will not be achieved. And so you take it into your own hands. Maybe you have a sense of justice that something's wrong and needs to be righted. This is Paul on the road of misdirected hope. Hope's not bad here. His desires in the rawness of them, not bad, but they're directed at something or someone that can't bear the weight of it. And like me and our Christmas expectations, my kids do not have the ability to hold the weight 
of that moment. That's misdirected. Are our desires bad? No. But the placement of them and the standard of them is what's off. But what eventually happens on this road to Damascus that Paul is on? He eventually encounters Jesus. He's blinded and he can't see what's right in front of him. So with that, we're going to go to the second road. So the first road is misdirected hope. The second road leads us down a path of unfulfilled expectations. And this is the road to Emmaus. So if you can, go flip with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus' resurrection. Um, and this is a, a telling of two of his disciples that are on a road to Emmaus. Verse 13. That very day, the day that Jesus rose, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what, about the things that have happened in, there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. So two guys after the Sabbath walking to Emmaus, assuming they're going home. They're walking. This is amazing to me. Jesus encounters them on the road. And like Paul, they can't see what's right in front of them. They're kept from recognizing. I mean, that's it. Somebody's actively not allowing them to see what's right in front of them. And Jesus asks them a question. And I, this is what's happened in my imagination. They're walking and he asks them the question and they just freeze. They stood still. And what were they experiencing in that moment of standing still? Sadness. Looking, they were sad. Why? Verse 21. We had hoped. They had dreams and expectations. They thought the fulfillments of all their hopes as God's people were finally going to be realized in Jesus. We had hoped. Unlike Paul, they placed their hope in the right place. Paul's was misdirected. Theirs was in a good spot. Their hope was in Jesus. And yet, 
their expectations are not met. As I was preparing this, it kept standing out to me, Jesus' response to their sadness. Because what does he do with their sadness? What he, well, he does not fix it right away. They're sad, and they, he, they still don't recognize who it is. Jesus doesn't go, oh, it's okay, guys. Hey, hey, it's me. See, ta-da, I'm risen from the dead. He doesn't solve their sadness in the moment. There's this progressive nature to, to God's actions, his, the revealing of himself. He allows them to continue to walk in their sadness. He later opens up the scriptures to them. He goes and have, has a meal with them. And it's after the breaking of the bread are their eyes finally opened and they realize what it was. But imagine the, that gap. There's this gap between Jesus showing up and their right recognizing of who he was. A, a gap between them seeing Jesus and their hopes being fulfilled. And what was given to them? Something better than what their expectations were in the first place. I mean, they were thinking kind of small potatoes and, they and their hope was lost. And Jesus comes, exceeds their expectations, but there's still sadness. In a uh, kind of... A, my regular monthly like heart check-in counseling time, uh, we were kind of processing through some of this stuff. And when it says that, in, we, and we started processing through the passage where it says, if you want to gain your life, what happens? What do you need to do? You have to lose it. Now, is what you're gaining better? Yeah, for sure. Is, is Jesus' fulfillment better than their expectations? For sure. Exceedingly better. He doesn't just defeat Rome. He defeats sin itself. So they gain life, but they still lose something. And we oftentimes say, oh, we're going to gain life if we're going to have our expectations exceeded by God. It's all going to be this wonderful experience. They still experience sadness. And, and Jesus doesn't come and solve it right away. He allows him to, them to sit with it. Allows them to feel the weight of their unmet expectations. Allows them to process it out and think it through. And allows that gap between them being aware of this and their expectations actually being exceeded. And what expectations have you had in your life about various things that have gone unfulfilled? In what ways has Jesus asked you to lay down in order to give you something better than that? I mean, remember, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. Does that mean you lose it right away, you gain it right away? No. Sometimes there's this gap. 
We, and we've talked about this before. That gap in between promise given and promise fulfilled in scriptures is often longer than we realize or want it to be. They had hoped that he was the one. Both of these stories were concerned about the hope of Israel. Both of them were concerned about hope that was given to their people that was going to be realized. Both of them were blinded from seeing what was right in front of them. Saul was blinded by the lights. We're not playing encore, okay? But he was blinded. They were blinded from seeing what was right in front of them. And both of them ultimately saw what their true source of hope was. It was in Jesus himself. And Jesus didn't lead them to be optimists, but to be hope-filled. Let me unpack that for a second. We tend to be optimists, not hopeful. What I mean by that is an optimist ignores the reality of the world around them and sees everything is going well. It's almost naive. Like, oh, it's all good. Up and to the right all the time. How's it good? Better than last week. We're good. That's an optimist. But a hopeful person recognizes the depths of the broken world. This is what N.T. Wright says. The optimist looks at the world and feels good about the way it's going. Things are looking up. Everything is going to be all right. But hope, according to N.T. Wright, at least conceived within the Jewish and then early Christian world was quite different. Listen to the sentence. Hope could and often was a dog, dogged and deliberate choice when the world seemed dark. It depended not on a feeling about the way things were and the way things were moving, but on faith, faith in one God. This faith had made, or this God had made the world. This God had called Israel his people. The scriptures, not least the Psalms, had made it clear that this God could be trusted to sort things out in the end, to be true to his promises, to vindicate his people at last, even if it had to be on the other side of terrible suffering. In this way, an optimist is, in my, what I'll say, is, is a gilded experience of hope. Gilded in the sense of uh, something gilded has an exterior of gold, but it's whatever the material underneath it is, is not the same as the outside. Gilded is, it's just, it looks good, it's shiny, it's great, but the core of it is not as great as it looks on the outside. Optimism, in this sense, is gilded. It's only partially, it looks great on the outside, but on the inside, it has not made that dogged and deliberate choice. Wright continues. He says his hope, in this sense, is not a feeling. It is a virtue. You have to practice it like a difficult piece of the, on the violin or a tricky shot at tennis. You practice the virtue of hope through worship and prayer, through invoking the one God, through reading and reimagining the scriptural story, and through consciously holding the unknowing future within the unshakable divine promises. What is he saying hope is? Well, hope is both a noun and a verb. 
Hope is a noun in the sense of it is the promised future hope. It is a place. It is a time. And it is a person, place, and a thing. Okay? It is a noun. But it's not only that. It's also a verb. I love this line. It's a dogged and deliberate choice. It's not dependent on feeling. It's a virtue that's practiced over and over again. In the early Christian imagination, while hope is a future promise, it's also a choice that needs to be made in the midst of what's going on in life. Choosing hope. And how do you practice it? How do you build the muscle? How do you get good at the tricky shot in tennis? Doing it over and over and over again. I think sometimes we think that hope is something that just happens to us. It's like, and I I would say in my framework, that's optimism. It's circumstances. Oh, things are good. Things are looking up. But hope is not circumstances going in the direction that we want them to go. Hope is the choice That even in the midst of terrible suffering, darkness, pain, difficulty, confusion, misdirected hope, unmet expectations, in the midst of that, I have a God who has shown himself to be worthy, who has shown himself that he's capable of keeping his promises, that he will, as And he writes, says, sort things out in the end that he will vindicate us, even if it's on the other side of that pain. Hope is that choice. It's not something that happens to us. Hope is like an anchor to steady us in a storm. So did anybody use a boat song when we were doing Encore? I don't remember. But think of like a boat for a second. When you, when you drop anchor, it, it's holding on to something steady. It's holding on to something that's unwavering. The, the, ground, the ground floor, if you will. What happens to the boat above it? Does the boat maintain steadiness at all times? No, right? The boat wavers. The boat moves. It, it, it experiences the reality of all that's going on around it. A hopeful person is not unwavering in the sense of doesn't move with the flow of things. Is there happiness, sadness, anger, frustration, fear? A hopeful person, it's not neglecting all that stuff. You feel the effects of the storm of life. It hits you, right? But when if hope is the anchor in the gospel, no matter how hard or difficult or wavering the storm is, because the anchor is set on the right thing, the storm can be disastrous and I'm still going to be all right. That's gospel hope. That's the effects of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Is that even if the storm is raging all over the place, the anchor is steady, consistent, And one more metaphor, it's the fuel that drives the car. 
Uh, there's a, a passage in the scripture. Hope deferred does what? Makes the heart sick. If you, if you are losing hope, the fuel in your vehicle is starting to run out. It's, it, it moves us. It keeps us going. In the midst of, I'm mixing metaphors here, okay? In the midst of the raging storm, it's what keeps us going because our hope is not set in the circumstances or the storm raging. It's not set like Paul did in himself and his people ability to follow the rules. It's set on the right thing like the roads to Emmaus. And the way we can learn from then is them is sometimes there's that gap between what we expect and what we want and what Jesus ultimately desires of us. Walter Brueggemann says, when you return to the original narrative of scripture, what you see is that hope is not some late tacked on hypothesis to serve a crisis, but rather hope is the primal dimension of every member of the church community. It's of first order. It's our standard always. It's not some add-on that we hopefully get. It's the most natural way for God's people to live. Is in a place of hope. Paul was right that his people needed to be pure. The people on the road to Emmaus were right in that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. But Paul's hope in his own ability was wrong. The timing and the way in which Jesus would fulfill it for the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus was wrong. But at the end of the day, the anchor or the place that our anchor can hold on to is Jesus himself. Jesus is the centerpiece at all of it. Him, himself, his person, his promises, his timing, his way of fulfilling his expectations. And what does Paul say about hope? That same person that was on the road to Damascus, Romans 15. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in, in believing so that you will abound in hope. Are you abounding in hope right now? In your life? In your circumstances? We can only abound if we get hope from the God who is the source of it. Where are you hopeless? Where is your hope misdirected? Where do you have unmet dreams or expectations? And where are you blinded by what is right in front of you? And what is right in front of us? The person of Jesus wanting to reveal his love to his people. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is why we go to the table. 
We go to the table not as optimists, not saying, hey, we're going to follow the rules and things will go well for us. We go to the table because we know, not like Paul, that things don't go well for us all the time. We are not pure by our own obedience. We are made pure because of the obedience of Jesus. On the cross, his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. His obedience allowed for him to and showcased his righteous standing before God. And now it allows us to be given that as a posture before God. I and you, by the truth of the gospel, is that we are pure because of him. So we go to the table to be reminded, not to earn it, not to receive it, but to be reminded that we already are if we've placed our faith in him. I'm not... But we also go to the table to be reminded of the future hope. This is a a family meal, a a glimpse or a taste of the meal to come. As Isaiah 25 says, of choicest meats and finest wines, where there's no sin, sickness, pain, and death. We go to this table to be reminded that one day the table will be much more robust. And it's the grounding of what allows us to have hope. The gospel is the centerpiece of our hope because Jesus is the gospel. And so whatever it is that you are experiencing or feeling or sensing, we, you bring all of that, the misdirected hope, the unmet expectations, you bring that to the table. And, you come, and we come to the gathering to receive from the one who Romans 15, 13 says, is the God of hope.